Welcome ZooAssemblyers! My name is Zuka Zalishvili and I'm the founder of ZooAssembly. ZooAssembly is an online podcast for the highest yield basic science and clinical knowledge tested on USMLE Step 1 and USMLE Step 2 CK. The information discussed in this podcast is intended only for educational purposes. It's not intended to prevent, diagnose, or to treat the medical conditions in real clinical practice, nor is it intended to reflect the policy and the guidelines of various health institutions. Simply put, we serve you to butcher your step exams. Please subscribe to our podcast, Facebook, Instagram pages, and the YouTube channels down below in the description of this episode so that we keep you tuned for the news at ZooSMLE. Now, let's start rolling. Today we will continue our surgery series. And I know that on our previous episode about surgery, I told you that we will have we would have two episodes about surgery. However, I realized that two episodes are probably not enough to discuss the majority of the conditions that I'd like to draw your attention to. So I would like to add one more episode. So presumably we will finish the surgery uh, topics in three episodes. So two more episodes are yet to come. And once again, these episodes are not comprehensive. So they don't discuss all the topics that could potentially be tested about surgery on step to CK. However, they test really, really high yield topics. Let's start. The first topic that I want to discuss with you today, guys, is emphysematous cholecystitis. And just as we did in our previous surgery episode, let's start discussing each condition in a structured way. At first, we will explain what the risk factors are for emphysematous cholecystitis. And one of the greatest risk factors for this condition is diabetes mellitus. Let me remind you that diabetes mellitus itself is sort of immunocompromised state because diabetic patients are prone to very, very serious infections. And if diabetic patient gets cholecystitis, then there might be the secondary infection of the inflamed gallbladder with a gas-producing bacteria, mostly gram-negative rods, which will eventually cause emphysematous cholecystitis. At the same time, if the patient is immunosuppressed due to any other cause, for example, let's say that the patient is a post-transplant patient, right? And she or he is on immunosuppressants. Or let's suppose that the patient is HIV positive. In that case, these forms of immunocompromise also predispose to emphysematous cholecystitis. And finally, vascular compromise could be another risk factor because if there is insufficient blood flow to the gallbladder wall, then the risk for infection and the bacterial overgrowth increases because the blood brings inflammatory cells, predominantly neutrophils, to the site of infection and bacterial overgrowth. Insufficient blood means insufficient delivery of neutrophils which 
in its, in its turn means bacterial overgrowth and higher risk for emphysematous cholecystitis. When we talk about the clinical presentation of this condition, well, it looks like this plain old regular cholecystitis in a sense that it is accompanied by fever. It also has the right upper quadrant pain because this is where the gallbladder is located and the patient might have nausea and vomiting as well. But here comes a very specific sign for emphysematous cholecystitis. The physician will be able to feel the crepitus in the abdominal wall next to the gallbladder. And crepitus felt in the abdominal wall while palpating the gallbladder is due to the air accumulated in the gallbladder wall. And in fact, this is what the word emphysematous means. Emphysematous means that there is an air in the gallbladder wall. Now, how do we make a definitive diagnosis of emphysematous cholecystitis? We will do right upper quadrant ultrasound, right? Because this is how we start the diagnostic workup of the right upper quadrant pain. And on the right upper quadrant ultrasound, we will see one very, very important finding. Can you logically tell me what finding we are going to see there? I hope you're telling me that we will see gas in the gallbladder wall. In other words, there will be this black areas inside the gallbladder wall and air looks black on the x-ray due to its low density. So this is how we will find out that this is emphysematous cholecystitis. And as I already told you, in emphysematous cholecystitis, there is superinfection with the gas-producing bacteria. Therefore, if we take the culture, we might find that the causative agent is gas-producing E. coli, or it might even be the Clostridium species, right? And can you please remind me specifically which species of Clostridium can produce the gas? I hope you're telling me that it's Clostridium perfringens, which is also implicated as one of the most important causative agents in the gas gangrene. Finally, uh, we might also see the mildly elevated aminotransferases, but this will be only mildly elevated because in emphysematous cholecystitis, the primary problem is in the gallbladder and not in the liver. Okay, finally, how do we treat a patient with emphysematous cholecystitis? And here's the kicker. The treatment is emergent cholecystectomy. And I stressed the word emergent because in emphysematous cholecystitis and in gangrenous cholecystitis, the mortality, is, the mortality rate is so high that we need to intervene right now and right here. In contrast, when the patient has classical cystitis without any gangrene or emphysema in, in, inside the wall, in that case, we can perform cholecystectomy within the next 72 hours of the symptom onset.
However, however, we don't have this luxury of time in case of the emphysematous or gangrenous cholecystitis. We do cholecystectomy right away. However, we have stressed many times during the discussion of this condition that emphysematous cholecystitis is caused by gas-forming bacteria. And I hope you are realizing what else we need in the management of this condition. Yes, yes, you're right. We need antibiotics. And we will definitely start with broad-spectrum antibiotics because this is truly life-threatening infection and we most likely go blind, so we, we need to cover a very broad spectrum of the bacteria. But after the culture results come back, then we can uh, just step down and uh, target the therapy to the susceptible bacteria. And we need to choose the antibiotics, which specifically include the clostridium coverage. For example, we can use the piptazo, which is sometimes also called zosin or vitamin Z. And piptazo, even though called anti-pseudomonum penicillin, is a very, very broad-spectrum antibiotic. It actually covers almost all gram-negative rods, and it can also cover the gram-positive rods, such as clostridium. And this was the emphysematous cholecystitis. Now we will discuss the evaluating algorithm for suspected unstable abdominal aortic aneurysm, or AAA. First of all, let's, let's remind ourselves what the symptoms are for unstable AAA. Well, aortic, abdominal aortic aneurysm is present in the abdominal aorta, therefore we might actually have the abdominal pain present in the patient. Sometimes it might also be the flank pain, and the reason for this is that the aorta itself is retroperitoneal organ once it uh, traverses the aortic hiatus in the diaphragm. So pain originating from the aortic segmental enlargement can also cause the flank pain. And sometimes it can also cause the groin pain if aortic aneurysm is close to the renal artery, uh, sorry, not renal arteries, but the common iliac arteries. Additionally, we might be able to palpate the uh, feel the pulsatile mass in a patient, and this pulsatile mass is the enlarged part of the aorta, which might become palpable. Also, we might get the flank ecchymosis if there is the leak of blood from the triple A. And finally, we might also get the limb ischemia if triple A has ruptured and the distal blood flow to the lower extremities is reduced. Okay, if we have one or more of these symptoms, then we can suspect unstable triple A. But then our next question is, is the patient hemodynamically stable or not? If the patient is hemodynamically stable, in that case, we can order the CT scan of the abdomen. And on the CT, if we identify the AAA, then we can start the medical therapy and we can also basically plan the repair. 
and the repair of the aortic aneurysm most likely happens via the closed procedure or EVAR. It is an abbreviation which stands for endovascular aneurysmal repair. However, if the CT does not identify the AAA, then we need to think about the other diagnoses in our differential because negative CT practically excludes the AAA because it has really, really high sensitivity to detect the abdominal aortic aneurysm. Okay, let's get back to the beginning of this algorithm and discuss the other branch of the management tree. What if the patient with symptoms of AAA is hemodynamically unstable? In that case, the next question that we ask ourselves is, does the patient have a known AAA? In other words, are we sure that this patient really has AAA? Was he or she diagnosed with AAA before? If the patient was diagnosed with AAA, we actually don't need any other imaging. We can go to the emergency surgery right away. However, if the patient has the symptoms of AAA and he or she is hemodynamically unstable, but this patient does not have pre-diagnosed AAA, in that case, we need the abdominal imaging. And the imaging that we will use is abdominal ultrasound. And on the abdominal ultrasound, if we identify the AAA, then we do the emergency repair. So we bring the patient to the OR right away. However, if on the focused abdominal ultrasound, AAA is not identified, then we definitely need to look for the other causes of the flank pain, abdominal pain, or pulsatile mass, whatever the symptoms are for this patient. And this was the discussion of the diagnostic and the management tree for AAA patients. The next topic that we'll discuss is extremity vascular trauma, or in other words, it's sometimes called traumatic arterial injury. This is when we have a trauma patient and this patient has the injury to the vessels of his or her extremities. And the clinical symptoms of the extremity vascular trauma are divided into two groups. We have hard signs and then we have soft signs. And you might ask me a question, why do we need this kind of classification in terms of the signs and symptoms? Well, let me answer your question. Uh, we need to classify the signs of extremity vascular trauma into hard and soft signs because the presence of the hard or the soft signs determines the further management of the patient. And before we discuss the management, we definitely should dive deep into the hard and soft signs. Hard signs for extremity vascular trauma are observed pulsatile bleeding, which certainly means that this is a very, very severe high-pressure bleeding. At the same time, if the patient has the bruit or the thrill over the injury, it means that there is a high systolic flow over that area, and this also is considered to be a heart sign. If the patient has expanding hematoma, it means that 
the patient has the bleeding into the tissue from this damaged vessel. And finally, if we have the signs of the distal extremity ischemia, this is also a hard sign. In ischemia of distal extremity, we mean six Ps, which are these famous signs of arterial insufficiency. This is pain, pallor, pulselessness, poikilothermia, uh, paresthesia, and one more, one more P, which I don't honestly re remember right now. I'll try to remember. Yeah, okay. Now, the soft signs include history of hemorrhage, at the same time, diminished pulses are considered to be the um, soft signs, but the other signs of distal ischemia will be the hard signs. If the patient has bone injury or if the patient experiencing is, experiences some neurological symptom on the extremity, probably signifying the nerve injury, this is also a soft sign. Okay. Now let's move on to the most important part of this topic, which is how do we manage patients with extremity vascular trauma? If the patient with extremity vascular trauma is found to have the hard signs or if the patient is hemodynamically unstable. So what, what I'm trying to say is that the patient might not have the hard signs, but the patient might be hemodynamically unstable, having hypotension or chest pain or shortness of breath. In any of these cases, we need immediate surgery. So we bring this patient to the OR right away. However, if the patient is hemodynamically stable, and patient only has the soft signs, then we can perform the imaging procedures such as CT scan. Sometimes we can also use the conventional angiography or the Doppler ultrasonography to check for the vessel injury. And then if the vascular injury is severe enough to threaten the nerves and the muscles distal to the injury, then we might need to perform the surgery. However, in case of the presence of soft signs and hemodynamic stability, we don't necessarily have to do the surgery on this patient. We might have to do only stabilization part. So this was discussion about extremity vascular trauma and its management based on the hard signs and soft signs. After discussing the extremity vascular trauma, Let's talk about the fat embolism syndrome. And just as we did for the previous conditions, let's start from the very beginning. What causes fat embolism syndrome? In other words, what are the circumstances which put the patient at high risk for developing FES or fat embolism syndrome? And before we say this, let me go back a little bit and remind you that when the person gets older, most of our bone marrow gets replaced with the uh, fat cells, with the adipocytes. And then in the adult, the only part of the skeleton which is still actively participating in hematopoiesis is 
the axial skeleton mostly it's basically the, the vertebral column and also sternum ribs and the pelvic girdle but the long bones usually have most of their bone marrow replaced not replaced but i mean fat cells occupy a big big part of the bone marrow in the extremities and then if we have damage of these long bones of the extremities the fat from the adipocytes can be displaced from the bone marrow into the blood and from the blood this fat embolus can go all the way up to the lungs and it can just lodge into the pulmonary capillaries which will give us the fat embolism syndrome so the circumstances in which we see fes is for example orthopedic surgery if the patient undergoes orthopedic surgery and there is the surgical iatrogenic manipulation of the long bones that can certainly displace the adipocytes and the fat from the long bone bone marrow into the circulation at the same time if the patient let's say gets into a motor vehicle accident and has the fracture of uh, femur or tibia or any other long bone fat might get displaced from this long bone into the circulation causing fes and finally a very interesting and very important cause of fes is acute pancreatitis can you think of the mechanism by which acute pancreatitis might actually be the cause of fes i hope you're telling me that during the acute pancreatitis the pancreatic enzymes specifically pancreatic lipase and the colipase start to break down the peripancreatic fat into individual fatty acids and these fatty acids not only get saponified with calcium but they can also be released into the circulation giving rise to fat embolism syndrome okay now that we know the common causes of the fes let's talk about how it presents in the clinical practice fes usually occurs one to three days after the initial event whatever it is it might be orthopedic surgery or pancreatitis or it might be the trauma causing fracture of the long bone but once the fes kicks in then it is characterized by the triad the patient might have the respiratory distress and this is caused by lodging of the fat embolus in the pulmonary capillaries and consequently we might also have the hypoxia at the same time the patient might experience the neurological dysfunction, for example, alter mental status, and the patient will also have petechial rash. However, the presence of petechial rash is not essential to make diagnosis of fetal, uh, not fetal, sorry, of the fat embolism syndrome. In other words, please don't wait for the petechial rash to be mentioned in the case to think about the fat embolism syndrome diagnosis will be made 
not only based on the symptoms but also based on the context meaning after what event the patient developed the signs and symptoms characteristic for FES and finally how can we prevent FET embolism syndrome well we need to immobilize the fracture as soon as possible because once we immobilize the fracture then there is a lower likelihood that the adipocytes or the fat itself will get displaced from the stable fracture into the blood. But if the patient starts to have the symptoms of fat embolism syndrome, in that case, the only practically only thing that we can do is simply supportive care. And if patient experiences the respiratory failure due to FES, we might even need to mechanically ventilate him or her. This was the overview of fat embolism syndrome. Moving forward, now let's discuss the management algorithm of ureteral stones. These are the kidney stones which are lodged or which are migrating across the ureters. First of all, let's remind ourselves what the common symptoms are in a patient with urolithiasis. This patient usually has this excruciating pain starting from the flank and radiating all the way down to the groin. And if we take a close look at this trajectory, the path from the flank to the groin parallels the path of the ureters. So pain might actually radiate and then localize from the flank to the groin gradually, which means that the stone is passing all the way down along the ureters. The patient will also have the colicky pain, which is the pain caused by obstruction of the hollow tube. Ureter is a hollow tube and we can imagine that there is a stone which obstructs the ureteric lumen and let's remind ourselves that ureter is a tube surrounded by a very strong layer of this smooth muscle. In other words, ureter also has peristalsis just like the GI tract. And whenever this muscle contraction reaches the point of obstruction caused by the stone, this is when it hurts like hell. But then when the peristalsis goes beyond the point of obstruction, then the pain is slightly relieved. In other words, to summarize, the pain comes and goes, or it comes in waves when we have urolithiasis, and specifically ureterolithiasis. This is also called the renal colic or colicky pain. However, please don't think that colicky pain is characterized only for the uh, urolithiasis. That's not true. Obstruction of any hollow tube or the lumen and concomitant peristalsis can cause colicky pain due to contractions against the obstructed point. Okay, now let's get back to the ureteral stone. Once we suspect that the patient has ureteral stone, then there are 
three conditions which we should exclude. So this is what we are asking ourselves. In a patient with possible ureteral stone, does he or she have urosepsis, acute kidney injury, or complete obstruction? If the patient meets either of these three criteria, meaning urosepsis, complete obstruction, and the, or the acute kidney injury, then we need an immediate urological consult because these conditions make the ureterolithiasis a true surgical emergency and we need to remove the stone and restore the urine flow. However, if we confirm that there are none of these three conditions, okay, then we start looking at the stone size. And the cutoff value, which I would like to ask you to remember, is 10 millimeters or one centimeter. If the stone is less than 10 millimeter, it is considered to be small or moderate sized stone. And usually the medical management of this stone is sufficient and in medical management I mean hydration and pain control as we already mentioned these patients with ureterolithiasis have excruciating pain and we definitely need to provide the pain relief and pain management might start with the medications as simple and as plain as NSAIDs but it may go up all the way to the opioids if the patient is intolerable to the amount of pain that she or he experiences. Hydration is necessary to prevent further formation of the stone. At the same time, we will administer alpha blockers to the patient with a stone sized less than 10 millimeters. Can you please tell me why we give the alpha blockers to such patient? I hope you're telling me that alpha-1 receptors are present not only at the bladder neck but also along the complete course of ureters. An alpha-1 receptor on the, on the smooth muscle of the ureters causes ureteral contraction or peristalsis. So by giving alpha-1 receptor blockers, we inhibit ureteral peristalsis which in and of itself will relieve the pain to some degree however the more important effect of giving the alpha blockers is that we will dilate the ureteral lumen to to the extent at which the stone less than 10 millimeters can actually come down and be excreted in the urine However, if after taking all of these measures, meaning if after providing adequate hydration, pain control, and the alpha blockers, patient still has intolerable pain, or there is no stone passage in the next four to six weeks, this is when we refer this patient to urologist. And now let's get back to the beginning of this part of the algorithm tree and let's discuss what happens if the ureteral stone is 
at least 10 millimeters in size from the very beginning. In that case, we need an immediate urological consult because the stone at least 10 millimeters size in diameter is considered to be a big stone and it is, and it is unlikely to be excreted in the urine by providing adequate hydration, pain relief, and the alpha blockers. So let's summarize the management of the ureteral stones. If the patient has the signs of the urosepsis or acute kidney injury, or the patient has signs of complete obstruction, then we don't pay much attention to the kidney stone size. We go to the urologist right away. However, if we exclude all of these three conditions, then we think about the stone size. Less than 10 millimeter stones are first treated medically with hydration, pain relief, and the alpha blockers. Oh, and let me tell you, let me ask you one thing. Can you please remind me of the alpha-1 blockers that we can use in this condition? I hope that you're telling me that it's terazosin and we can also use tamsulosin. Because terazosin and tamsulosin can block not only alpha-1 B receptors, which are on the blood vessels, but also alpha-1A and alpha-1D subreceptors present on the urinary tract, including the ureters. And then if the stone is at least 10 millimeters in diameter from the very beginning, we, can, we uh, refer the patient to urologist right away. So this was discussion of the management of ureteral stones. Let's go forward. And now we will discuss the condition called open globe injury. This is an injury of the eyeball caused either by the blunt or penetrating trauma. The blunt force trauma usually ruptures the eye, eyeball in a particular location. However, penetrating trauma with the sharp objects, for example, something like the needle or the knife, usually causes the laceration of the eyeball. However, regardless of whether it's a rupture or a laceration of the eyeball, both of these etiologies are still considered to be open globe injury. And probably one of the most important things about this condition is to know the clinical features and therefore to be able to recognize open globe injury in a question stem. Whenever we have the rupture or laceration of the eyeball, what material or what substance do you think will come out of the laceration or the ruptured site? Are you telling me that this is the vitreous humor or vitreous fluid? If you are, then you are totally right. Vitreous humor will leak out from this damaged area and it might be described as the gush of fluid from the eyeball. At the same time, one of the most striking signs of the open globe injury is the eccentric pupil. An eccentric pupil, we mean that the 
shape of the pupil is changed from the regular circle into a teardrop shape. So the pupil will look like a teardrop and this happens due to the uh, damage and disruption of the retina and the choroid. And we know that basically iris is the anterior continuation of the choroid. So if choroid is disrupted, then the shape of the iris might also change. And this is exactly the teardrop pupil. There is no surprise in effect that the patient will experience decreased visual acuity because open globe injury damages the retina as well and it decreases the division. And at the same time, since the retina is damaged, the patient might experience the afferent pupillary defect. In afferent pupillary defect, we mean the Marcus Gunn pupil. Do you remember what this phenomenon means? This is when a unilateral optic nerve or the retina is damaged. So when we shine the light into the ipsilateral eye, then none of the eyes will constrict in response to the light. However, when we swing the uh, flashlight to the opposite eye with an intact retina and the optic nerve, both of the eyes will undergo meiosis because the efferent limb of the ocular reflex, which is uh, cranial nerve 3, are intact. So you could also see this afferent pupillary defect. And one more thing. In open globe injury, there will be decreased, not increased, but decreased intraocular pressure. Could you please tell me why the intraocular pressure will be decreased here? I hope you're telling me that leakage of the vitreous humor decreases the pressure in the posterior segment or the vitreous chamber which will also sequentially decrease the intraocular pressure in the anterior segment, both anterior chamber and the posterior chamber. And let's contrast the open globe injury as a cause of decreased intraocular pressure to the cause of the increased intraocular pressure. Do you remember the condition which causes increased intraocular pressure? Well, are you saying glaucoma? If you are, you are 100% correct. And I agree with you. Okay, let's get back to the open globe injury. How do we, um, how do we uh, treat someone with open globe injury? First of all, this is a surgical emergency because the eye is already severely damaged and we need to do everything to preserve the eyeball and preferably the vision to the patient. So we need emergency ophthalmology referral. At the same time, we might need the eye shield to protect the eye from all of those particulate matter and like small microbes and the dirt that might go into this uh, laceration. We also might have to do the CT scan of the eye to check for any other anatomical disruptions implicated by the 
by the open globe injury. And finally, we need to take measures against the infection, which is a very, very plausible and realistic complication of the open globe injury. Because once again, there is this laceration, which is just the gate for the bacteria to enter into the vitreous chamber from the orbit. Therefore, we might even get the endophthalmitis after open globe injury. We need to start IV antibiotics to prevent the onset of infection or to fight off the already ongoing infection. And we also need to administer tetanus prophylaxis because the risk of acquiring the tetanus infection is quite high in the glo open globe injury. And this was the discussion of the open globe injury. Shifting gears, now let's move on to the orbital compartment syndrome. If you remember, in our first episode about surgery, we discussed abdominal compartment syndrome, and back then I told you that compartment syndrome is when the pressure increases significantly in a closed space. And there are many, many closed spaces in our body, right? One of them is peritoneal cavity, and therefore we might have the abdominal compartment syndrome. However, another hollow space, which is closed by the bones on three sides, and then skin and subcutaneous fat on the anterior side, is the orbit, where the eyeballs are located. So if we have some kind of inciting event, which can increase the pressure inside the orbit, then it might lead to orbital compartment syndrome. From this discussion only, what I would like you to realize is that compartment syndrome is not a condition restricted to the muscle group and the fascial group of the muscles in our extremities. It can also happen in any other enclosed space whenever the pressure is significantly increased. Now, what are the risk factors for orbital compartment syndrome? Trauma can cause OCS. Trauma to the eyes, certainly. At the same time, if the patient is coagulopathic, that could cause the bleeding in the orbit, and accumulation of blood in the orbit can itself cause orbital compartment syndrome. Infection is another common cause of this condition, and the idea is that infection of the orbital tissues, for example, orbital cellulitis, right, or post-septal cellulitis, causes infiltration of the immune cells, like neutrophils, and also exudation of the protein-rich fluid, which fills up the orbit and increases the pressure around the eyeball. And finally, the surgery on the eyeball can induce orbital compartment syndrome due to surgical manipulations. Orbital compartment syndrome is a very acute condition. The patient suddenly complains of the acute pain in the eye, and the patient might also experience an immediate vision loss. Physical exam is 
quite helpful in at least suspecting the orbital compartment syndrome and let me tell you how. During the OCS, the patient might have the periorbital swelling, ecchymosis, and the tightness. And the idea is that if the pressure is increased in the orbit, then all of that pressure pushes the eyelids anteriorly, and so the skin over the periorbital area is very tense and very stretched. The same mechanism gives rise to the proptosis or exophthalmos when the eyeballs look anteriorly displaced um, than they normally are. We might also see the diffuse subconjunctival hemorrhages in a patient with an OCS and the idea is that whenever the pressure increases significantly in the orbit, this pressure is transmitted to the subconjunctival vessels and the high pressure in these vessels can cause their rupture, causing the diffuse subconjunctival hemorrhage. However, please take a close look at, this, uh, at these words. Like, this is a diffuse subconjunctival hemorrhage, meaning subconjunctival hemorrhage happens at multiple different locations. And the reason I am stressing this point is that uh, just local one subconjunctival hemorrhage does not signify orbital compartment syndrome. Local subconjunctival hemorrhage might simply be caused by cuff or otherwise increased pressure on the subconjunctival vessels. However, if we have diffuse subconjunctival hemorrhage, that might give us a clue that the pressure is actually increased in the orbital compartment. Extraocular moments will also be limited because when there is uh, such a high pressure in the orbital space, it's very hard for the extraocular muscles to move the eye in any direction. And finally, we know that part of the optic nerve, at least the distal part, is located in the orbital space. So once this pressure presses down on the optic nerve, we might also get the afferent pupillary defect or the Marcus Gunn pupil that we discussed about the open globe injury. And then what's the management of orbital compartment syndrome? Just like we discussed in abdominal compartment syndrome, in any type of compartment syndrome the most important measure is to relieve the pressure. Orbital compartment syndrome is a true surgical emergency and we need to decompress the orbital space so we need to remove whatever there is inside the orbital space increasing the orbital pressure. And this was discussion about the orbital compartment syndrome. Now we will discuss the Ottawa ankle rules. And Ottawa ankle rules are the uh, criteria by which we decide whether to take an x-ray on the ankle of the foot when the patient complains of the ankle or foot pain. Let's start from the fact that ankle sprain is one of the most common injuries in sports. And generally, it's one of the most common musculoskeletal injuries. And Ankle sprain is simply the damage of the ligaments, especially its 
anterior talofibular ligament, right, which is the low ankle sprain and overall is the most common sprain. However, sometimes patients complaining of the ankle pain or the foot pain might have not the sprain, but the actual fracture of any of the bones of the ankle or the foot. So the question is, when should we do the x-ray to rule out the ankle or the midfoot fracture? And we need to have either of the three characteristics, which we'll discuss right now, in order to strongly suspect the fracture and therefore to perform the ankle or the foot x-ray. Let's start with the ankle. When do we need the ankle x-ray? Ankle x-ray is performed if the patient experiences the pain at the malleolar zone and the malleolar zone is the region around or across the medial and lateral malleoli and the patient has tenderness, meaning intensification of pain on touch at the posterior margin of the medial malleolus or patient has tenderness at the posterior margin of lateral malleolus or the patient cannot take four steps in total with both of his or her feet. This is when we take the x-rays for the ankle. However, let's now discuss when should we perform the x-ray of the foot. This happens when we have the pain at the midfoot and the midfoot is the region where we have the bones called cuboidal bone, navicular, lateral, middle and medial cuneiform bones. Whenever there is pain at the midfoot zone and we have tenderness at the navicular bone or tenderness at the base of the fifth metatarsal or if the patient cannot take four steps in total with both of her or his feet, this is when we need to do the foot x-ray. And trust me, these Ottawa rules, ankle rules, are extremely high yield because the pain elicited from the ankle sprain and from the fracture might look similar to each other in a question stem. And we need to pay attention to these clues in order to decide whether we need an ankle or the foot x-ray. And this was discussion of the Ottawa ankle rules. And finally, at the end of our today's episode, let's discuss a small topic called patellar dislocation. Even though it's small in, in terms of its volume, it's a very high yield topic for the USMLE step to seek exam. And first we need to discuss the risk factors for patellar dislocation. Patella, as we know, is a kneecap or the small circular bone in front of the knees, right? And the risk factors for patellar dislocation is first and foremost, foremost the joint laxity. Whenever the patellar joint is too loose, it can move from one side to another, and finally, it might get dislocated. At the same time, if the patient has tight iliotibial bend, 
This also contributes to the patellar instability, which in turn can cause the patellar dislocation. And then very, very intensive occupational exertion, like dancing or it might be military training, competitive sports, can all predispose the patients to patellar dislocation. Now, how does the patient get patellar dislocation? The most common mechanism of injury is a very, very quick twisting movement around a flexed knee. So I just, I, I would like you to imagine a partially flexed knee, which performs this twisting movement. In that case, patella does not have time to adjust to the new position and it might dislocate or get displaced from the patellar fossa in the anterior knee joint. And this will cause severe, severe pain in the front of the knee and there might be the popping noise too. However, this popping noise is a non-specific finding in the knee pathologies because popping sound might also be caused by meniscal tears, for example, but as we mentioned just seconds ago, it might also be caused by patellar dislocation. And probably the highest yield feature of patellar dislocation is what I'm going to say right now. During patellar dislocation, the physical exam will reveal the lateral dislocation of patella and decreased extension. And the idea is that patella is connected to the quadriceps femoris muscle on the top, right? And quadriceps femoris muscle is one of the strongest muscles in our body, which mediate which mediates the knee extension. So patellar, sorry, quadriceps femoris tendon just pulls the patella slightly superiorly and laterally. And this is why the patient with patellar dislocation will have lateral displacement of patella. And plus, since the quadriceps femoris tendon might get damaged in this condition, the extension will be impaired because the muscle responsible for extension is the quadriceps femoris muscle. We have come to an end of our today's discussion and let's summarize everything that we have discussed today. We have discussed multiple different topics across the surgery. The main take-home messages for practically all of these topics is to know their pathophysiology. Some of them also requires us to know their diagnostic algorithm and we also should pay attention to the treatment. You can leave the voice message on this episode to let us know how we can improve our podcast for you. So thank you for your kind attentions with Emily and see you on the next episode.